And we are super psyched to welcome our newest sponsor, Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest best source for premium, new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle, that's West Seattle, or Portland stores. You'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I know because I'm in there a lot. Grab a cup of coffee, swing on in, don't spill your coffee, and check it all out. And now if you use code TOURSTORIES10, you can get 10% off at thunderroadguitars.com. Yes, that's me playing guitar. Hello, big news from our friends over at DistroKid. They now have an app. This app works on iOS and Android, of course, and it's available in the Apple Store and Google Play Stores and all the stores where you buy apps. Go check it out. It's got a lot of cool features. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Awesome. You can withdraw from the app via push notifications. A little dangerous for me, but rad. Anyways, go check it out. It's all at distrokid.com app. And don't forget, you can still get 30% off your DistroKid account by going to distrokid.com VIP slash tour stories. Have a great one. We continue to celebrate our friends and partners over at Isotope, and we got some big news for you. The gold standard of audio repair, RX11, is coming in May. In the meantime, you can buy RX10 now on sale and get RX11 absolutely free when it's released. Tour Story listeners get 10% off by using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. All at isotope.com. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com. Hello, Tour Story listeners. Thank you for your continued support, and welcome to Season 4. I'd like to take a second to thank our friends and sponsors over at Isotope. Here at Ruinous, Chris and I rely heavily on easy-to-use tools like RX and Ozone for all of our audio repair, mixing, and mastering. Now, Tour Story listeners can get 10% off Isotope plugins or try Music Production Suite Pro for free for 30 days using code FRET10. That's F-R-E-T-1-0. To get your discount and check out all of their easy-to-use products, go to isotope.com slash ruinous. That's I-Z-O-T-O-P-E dot com slash ruinous. And use code FRET10. And thank you for listening. Hello? Hey, Nick. Hello, Nick. It's Joe Plummer. Oh, yeah. Hey, hey, Joe. Hey, how's it going? I I know I've been texting you a lot. I just wanted you to know, try to schedule a tour story. You seemed interested. Uh, listen, Joe, I um I'm going to the dentist right now. Yeah. My favorite parking garage is open. I'd like to pull in there. Well, can we just uh, maybe schedule it real quick? Why don't you like text me like 15 or 16 more times uh, when I'm trying to do something? <laughs> and can... okay. uh, you seem annoyed. I'll bid you adieu here. I'm about to park. I just have more pressing things to do now. Okay. All right. Sorry. Hey, take it easy, Joe. Yeah, bye. Hey! Nick Waterhouse is a singer, songwriter, and producer from Santa Ana, California. In this episode, Nick tells us about his first trip overseas 
the importance of a salty but seasoned tour manager, and what happens when you mix American rock and rollers with European aristocrats. From Ruinous Media, this is Tour Stories. It was my first international tour in 2012. I hadn't been overseas before, and I was with a band of, honestly, kids. I mean, I was 24, just turned 25. Uh, I, I had an 18-year-old band member. Everybody was sort of San Francisco waiters, you know, service industry people that were given a trip overseas to play about 24 shows for the first time ever in all of our lives. And the story takes place in Copenhagen, Denmark, which was somewhere that I hadn't really spent much time in. And with a first tour manager that we ever had, who was a Czech pirate of the land. He looks like a human bulldog. His name is Martin. I have great love for him, but he was notoriously grumpy from tour managing all kinds of badly behaved bands. I mean, he toured with Rammstein in the 90s and would do, you know, metal tours and punk rock tours. So a lot of times things would be much tamer, I think, than he was accustomed to. But he would be applying a lot of his same rubric for judgment of situations to our our band of naifs. So we're in Denmark. I am very pleased with how the tour is going. It's it's a pretty relentless tour. We didn't have a lot of nights off, and I've never actually been a very profitable touring enterprise, but it's typically because my band is so large. I made the grim mistake early on of really resolving to writing for arrangements that involve around seven or eight people. So I've always been on the road on a punk rock budget with a um, show band lineup, really. And Martin was a guy who I think we amused him and he amused us. And um, he was not a merch uh, salesman. He was a driver and a TM only. And we would be doing these punishing long drives. It's like, we're okay, we're playing Hamburg. We have to be in Copenhagen the next night for a show. Um, so it's, it's a fair, everybody's up at six and we're driving, right? So um, there was sort of like this set in my band of, of, who I referred to in my journals at times as the sailors and that they, they sort of became the sailors on leave when they were given a night off uh, compared to some of the backing vocalists who were drinking tea and hanging out and doing yoga and being very healthy. Whereas some of the, especially young men in my band would disappear and not arrive until lobby call with a five o'clock shadow and a, a stench around them and a panicked look. So this particular night was what I felt a fair reflection of the meeting of many worlds that occurs and would continue to occur in my career. We played a really cool show that was like in a, in a hip sort of modern art center. And um, when you have saxophones and backing vocalists, you sort of fall outside of the, the rock box um, traditions, right? Some of my shows would be in, in sticky floored rooms, but not a lot, especially in Europe, since they consider me like part of the American 
I guess, like folk and jazz tradition or or whatever. So the audiences were all super mixed. It would be like, you know, one guy who was clearly a, a deep record collector in his mid 40s that had the ratty jean jacket. And then next to him would be some like suited uh, uh, bespoke types next to some sort of like scummy garage rock teenagers next to some sophisticated city kids who were all in groups and they were all sort of mingling and that that was kind of the beauty of of my thing i felt at the time especially like all these different types of groups could interact at the end of the night like a lot of the tour i was left in charge of the merch which has its pros and then it drives up sales when uh, me the act is selling the good it means it gives that fan like a chance to to really interact with me and maybe get something signed if they're into that or just you know it's like something a little special and novel i found to a lot of people where they would be like oh well you're you're performing in a suit and yet you're running your own merch booth like how does that work so while i'm doing this merch sales this is usually where the information pipeline would begin. And especially in those early days, the group of dudes, which it was a dual keys and sax player, the other sax player and the drummer who were all sort of like down for a good time every night because they didn't have to sing. <laughs> they didn't care if they lost their voice. Having a hangover wasn't going to affect their... Um, people weren't focusing on them as much in their minds. Uh, so for somebody like me, I wasn't always going out, but... I became the bottleneck for them to find out what was going on, right? I was like the bait to find there, like, where is there a party? Is, uh, is there somewhere to go? What's, you know, what's the spot? And all these kids, essentially, having never been overseas before, were, of course, like, feeling like they're on spring break every night in, in the dead of late winter in Denmark. So um, the grumpy TM, Martin... It's constantly going like, nah, these guys, they want to go somewhere, but we have to get up so early to drive to Paris tomorrow. They're getting really wild style, you know, and he's constantly cursing in check and naysaying every possibility. So it would be this poll between like, oh, Martin, we want to go here. And, and it would really be a big performative argument for about 10 minutes before he would inevitably cave in and uh, take the sailors to wherever it is they wanted to go. So in Denmark, at the merch table, I am talking to some really like hip, young rock and rollers. Like it's a group of three girls and two guys, and they were all like very aware of all these sort of San Francisco garage bands that I knew. And on the other side of the table, I notice a couple that had been just like madly dancing around throughout the whole show. The guy looked like he was a British Lord in like Savile Row. And he was young. He was like in his mid thirties. It was like, it was like Prince Charles in the late eighties, like private school boy, like long swept back hair, like immaculate tailoring. His wife was wearing pearls and they kept waving. They were like waving to me, but very politely. Like they clearly hadn't spent a lot of time at a merch table in my opinion. So the band members, the young guys, they all come around and they start talking to the rock and roll people while I go talk to this dashing couple. The guy is straight ahead, the attache to the economic advisor for the UK government in Copenhagen. And he is just like 
over the moon that he got to see me, you know, he and his wife were like, this is our date night. We've come out and like, we were so excited. It was such a marvelous show, like absolutely marvelous old boy, you know? And part of my feeling then was, I'm just like, are you, this is a joke, right? Like, this is so dead on. Like you're, you're just like the landed gentry here at my show telling me like, I can't believe I'm meeting you, you know? And he goes, I must, I must buy you a drink. And, um, there's no bar because this was an art center. And part of the conversation that was going on to the side of me with the rock and roll kids and, and the kids of my band was, oh, everything's closing on this side of town. There's nothing. And of course, one of the members really, really wants to like go make the hang, you know, like has to go out tonight, like has it has a bee in his bonnet that it's like party time in, in Copenhagen. So the guy keeps saying, he's like, I, uh, I've got, I've got the most wonderful rare scotch we we i would it would honor me if you would come and drink it with me and my wife here you know and 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 like i really cannot recall their names but it was absurd it was like uh you know penelope and franz or something and uh, this conversation is sort of like i'm caught between the two worlds and i'm starting to try to break stuff down as the crowd is thinning out and the guy goes nick i know a spot please let me host you. And and at this point, this is when I'm intrigued, but I also know that he doesn't know what the rest of the rabble, they're going to tag along no matter what. So I'm trying to politely fend him off, but he insists, like he insists. And then he walks off. He's like, I'm going to make a call. And his wife, she takes me aside and she's like, it would mean so much to him if he could have a drink with you. We've played your record so much all year. You're you're the only contemporary artist that my husband likes. And he comes back and he's like, right then, I've got the perfect place. Well, I had to flat out tell him, I said, listen, Mr. So-and-so the third, if I'm going, my my band has to come. Like, I, I hope you're all right with that, but I can't be separate. And he, he, he gets this sort of like half, half lowered, uh, filmy eyed look. And I realized that he's already a drunk Englishman. And he goes, well, it'll be a good time, won't it? Of course it will. Come on, all of you. So he gives me a card with an address written on it. And I show it to Martin, my tour manager, who's been touring since the 80s. And he's like, I know Denmark. There's no bar here. This is no bar. All the rock and roll kids have no idea what this place is. We spend 15 minutes driving around, of course, just like the rest of my tours, we're in a sprinter with a sleeper up top. There are like six people laying on the sleeper. The whole van is packed. There's, you know, it's three rows of three across. I'm up front on the whole drive. Martin's just going like, like just muttering in check the entire time. And he's like, these girls that the piano player wants to follow, they're like sirens, Nick. They'll run your ship aground. Take it from me. Take it from me. And he keeps repeating this over and over again until we finally find the place. Now, the building looks like like a 1600s era Georgian home. It's just a it's like diplomats row. And I look to the right and I realize like directly across the way is what I was guessing was the Danish parliament. And Martin is so confused. He's just like. This isn't a bar. I'm coming back to circle around in 15 minutes. I just want all these people out of my van now and I want to go to sleep. But you go see 
What a failure this was, and I'll be back to get you in 15. So everybody piles out of the van, and we walk up, and it's like a dark green painted door that has a knocker on it and a bell. And I see a little gold placard. And it turns out that this is like a private gentleman's club, like for diplomats. <laughs> and they open the door and it's a guy in a white tuxedo. <laughs> so I'm standing there trying to shush the uh, seven or eight people I have behind me who have just piled out of my tour van. Some of the rock and roll kids were, it was that, that black denim that's been worn so long it's turned gray kind of look you know tote bags lots of pins it's like everybody's sharing cigarettes it's just it's just this thing where i'm there in my sport coat and my open collar shirt and i'm immediately feeling underdressed and i realize that behind me is like the sailors from my band and all of the rabble that has come along with us but the attache invited us we're his guests so the dour looking man in the white tuxedo jacket, he rolled his eyes because I think I soon came to realize who I was dealing with. The Englishman was at the bar with his wife. It's like a movie set of what you would think Le Diplomat dining zone is. It's, it's, it's not really a, a bar. It's, an, it's exactly what it looked like. It's an ancient Georgian house that has like the front parlor, the middle parlor, a massive fireplace. Every room is full of, you know, like potted ferns and palms and brocaded this and that and massive velvet armchairs. It's like, it is, it's like, you know, where three or four heads of state go after negotiating some tariff. So it's just the staff, the Englishman, his wife, and one other very old man who's sitting in the far corner reading the paper and he has like a silver tea tray beside him. So we all come in. The Englishman seems to have had three drinks in the time between when I saw him at the venue and when we've arrived. So he's just like, Nick, it's, it's such a terrible honor to have you here. Just every, all the drinks are on me. I'm signing for everything. I want you to understand that. Everyone here, everyone with you, it's, you play some of the best music I've heard in my whole life. We walk up to the bar and my um, saxophone player, who's 18, who, you know, had the, the only job I think he had before playing in my band and going on tour was like working in the school library. He he looks at the menu and he goes, he's like, Nick, the drinks. I don't know if I understand the kroner, but the drinks here are $80. <laughs> and I'm just like, George, don't say anything. You just heard him say it. His word is his bond. Don't ask questions. Don't volunteer anything and don't tell anyone your name. I figured you as new between earth and sky. It made you seem so small and leaf, nameless, but named in my eye. When you came walking, another, you came a talking. Whoa, not like another. Yeah, my Vincent.
So the whole rabble piles past us, and I've sort of like cordoned off the young lord and his wife, and I'm entertaining him so that, you know, he feels, I, I mean, I was, it was an honor, but it was highly surreal that he wanted to bring such a cloud of energy into his uh, space, but maybe he was getting off on it, honestly. He ordered drinks for every single one of us, and every round, he would insist on picking out everyone's drink. He started forgetting how many there were, so he was sending more drinks than there were people by the fireplace at this point. So I'm leaning on the bar and I'm doing that thing where I'm starting to try to block him because I'm noticing stuff like some of the rock and roll kids are sitting in the potted plant, like smoking. It's almost like an old Ewing British comedy where I'm, I'm, I'm nodding and raising my eyebrows and giving him the right responses just to keep his eyes from looking over the edge to see my drummer who's lit his jacket on fire and is stealing clotted cream from the old man sitting in the corner chair. So. By the stroke of midnight, which apparently they were supposed to be closing, he heartily tipped all the head waiter types to stay open for an extra two hours. And um, my my last few memories of being in there were having him explain to me how cheap land was to buy in uh, northern Denmark. And he kept saying, Nick, do you know any land? Have you ever purchased any land? And I was thinking like, well, we're sharing hotel rooms, so I think the likelihood of me purchasing land is very low, sir. Um, as one of the rock and rollers vomited in the, uh, in the palm tree and uh, my 18-year-old saxophonist uh, was laying prostrate on a velvet couch holding his um, third talisker, which was all charged to our dear host. Uh, by the end of the night, his wife carried him out and we sort of snuck out only to find Martin asleep in the van, never really certain where we went, but so worried that we had been arrested by military police because of its location that he waited outside the building. <laughs> so, so that was my night in Copenhagen. find out what his official title was i looked him up and he actually was attached to the economic office it was pre-brexit of course so it was via the eu essentially like he would he would have been stationed in brussels but he happened to be there for a um conference no skin off his teeth no that's a, that sounds fun man those are the those are the things to live for they really are i've seen it before just you can't be like hey guys uh you know let's just chill (laughs) yes it's because it's for one it's no fun to chill especially when you're 19 but it's also like what a bummer if everyone just sat there and drank they'd all be bored and cranky anyways well it's the kind of thing where i felt like maybe this guy had the feeling he was living a little by hanging out with um, the musicians he had just seen. Like he yeah. he wanted to he wanted to go to the other side of the tracks for the night, and um, I felt like I was the bridge there, and that really represents the uh, dichotomy of my fan base, especially around that time period.
Thanks to Nick for the story, and thank you for listening. If you enjoy Tour Stories, please subscribe. And for more stories from the road, go to ruinousmedia.com slash tour stories. Joe Plummer. Hey. Hey. Uh, sorry I've been calling you so much. Just I wanted to get a follow-up on that tour story. Maybe you could get one. Follow-up on the tour story. I did a tour story. But no, I, no, I know the... Uh, I just... we got to record it. I'm calling you a lot. Are you annoyed? You've been calling me a lot? I haven't spoken to you in like a year. You just texted me back like a half hour ago. I just wanted to see if we could schedule a tour story. What do you think? This is Nick Sorburn, you fucking idiot. <sighs> Shit. Sorry, dude. Bacow!